As you know, on Sunday evenings we're looking at the gospel uh, according to Mark, the good news um, according to Mark. And uh, we move on to a section this evening in uh, Mark chapter 2 to uh, Mark chapter 3 verse 6. So if you'd like to turn to that passage, that's found on page 1003 in the Church Bibles, or 1,557 in the larger print ones. Much of the the narrative that we're looking at this evening is actually found in three of the four Gospels. And uh, we're looking at four incidents that result in opposition to Jesus by the religious authorities. And uh, we'll begin at at verse 1, I'll read to, to verse 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralysed man, carried by four four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the man, sorry, lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralysed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take up your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said, in full view of them all. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up and take your mat and go home. He got up, took took up his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. This, this incident follows on um, from where we left off a couple of weeks ago. And um, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, the, the narrative ended when Jesus had healed the man with leprosy and told him, see that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourselves to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to, to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. And so we we see as a result of this man not doing as Jesus had asked him, that the crowds were really flocking in, and Jesus was limited on where he could go and what he could do. And then when he returns to Capernaum, which is on the northern 
side of Galilee, then the crowds amass round him. And probably as you read this, it's a story that we're all familiar with. It's a great one in the, in the Sunday school. And the you know, children making the house and the man on the mat and doing all the dramatisation. It really captures our imagination. But I want us to think a little more about it rather than just the healing this evening. Why, did Jesus, why didn't Jesus just heal him? Jesus could quite easily, as he said, what's easier? To say, your sins are forgiven, or take up your mat and walk. Was this man's illness a result of some particular sin? Many rabbis believed that that was the case. That if you were crippled or you were ill, it was because you had sinned. Many people today still believe the same that if you're ill or disabled, that it can be the result of some sin. Or perhaps those who believe the lie of reincarnation would say that perhaps it's some particular sin in your previous life. And so, first of all, we must dismiss any such theory. Jesus is not saying to this man... Because you have sinned, you're in this position. All illness, disease, pain, suffering and death are the result of the fall. They are the result of Adam's sin and our subsequent sin. And although it may be true that in certain cases our actions, of course, can lead to illness... For example, if you drink too much alcohol, then you'll have liver disease. But, of course, people have liver problems without drinking alcohol. Jesus was once asked, who had sinned? Was it this man or his father? So you could see the mindset of the culture of the day. The reason that there is illness... Sickness, suffering, death, war and strife is because we live in a fallen world. Because we live in a world that has rebelled against God. Not necessarily of any particular individual action. And these people had flocked to Jesus like going to A&E. We think the A&E departments get busy. It was nothing compared to this situation. But we're told here that this man's friends, they had the faith, they believed that their friend could be healed and would be healed by the Lord Jesus. And this is shown by the extent to which they went. They didn't give up when they saw the crowds And if you're anything like me, as soon as you see a queue, I turn off. I don't do queuing. So these people are a little bit more persistent. They cared so much for him, they were prepared to take extreme action. It's easy when we read this narrative to forget that the main ministry of Jesus was not one of healing and performing miracles 
the main ministry of Jesus was teaching. And that is what we, we read. He, at the beginning of that passage, we read, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. We see that Jesus' main ministry is teaching. The miracles that he performed are out of compassion for the suffering of the people, to bring glory to God and to authenticate his message and to show his authority over sin and death and illness. He refused to perform miracles to order. When they asked him, you know, to do a miracle, he would he refused. In saying, son, your sins are forgiven, he's demonstrating that the real need of this man and of all of us is not just relief from our immediate circumstances or healing of the body or the mind, but that we need to be spiritually healed, that our problem is much deeper than a physical need. That is, we need to be put right with God. We need to have our sins, our disobedience, our rebellion against God forgiven. We need to be brought from spiritual death into spiritual life. And this in itself, when we read this, it raises a couple of questions. I don't know why perhaps any of you or some of you are here this evening, as you're sitting there, what's going through your mind. It may be that you are looking for the answer to a particular problem in your life. However, I do know that the overruling need that you have this evening is to know God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ, to be made alive in Christ. The second question, for those, with this being true, for those of who know this, who have come to Christ, who know the joy of sins forgiven. Are we as passionate as those four friends were regarding that man? Are we as passionate in bringing others to Jesus? Do we have the same desire that we're prepared to go, as it were, the extra mile? You know, it would have been quite easy, wouldn't it? There they are, they carry him, they see the crowd. Oh, too busy today, we'll come back tomorrow. They took fairly extreme measures. In making this statement, Jesus caused quite a stir. What the teachers of the law said is true. All sin is against God. We may think that People, if you like, do things against us or break the law and against the government or whatever. All sin is against God. David in, in, the, in the Psalms says, against you alone have I sinned. So only God can forgive sin. Many people who dispute the deity of Jesus say that he never claimed to be God. But those experts of the law, those teachers of the law, who were there in the time of Jesus, they never doubted what Jesus was saying 
or doing. They never doubted his claims for one minute. They didn't accept him as the Messiah, but they knew who he claimed to be. And tonight, Jesus is either the Son of God, the Christ, as he claimed to be, or he's a liar and a fraud. You cannot have it any other way. You cannot say he was a good man, because he wasn't. If he wasn't the Son of God, he wasn't a good man. He was a liar and a fraud, because he claimed to be something that he wasn't. If Jesus is God, he has the authority to forgive. He also has authority, as we have seen, over the the elements, if you like, over creation, over sickness and death and and illness. But he also has authority over sin and the forgiveness. He has authority over us. If he is God, he has authority. If he is who he says he is, he has authority over each one of us. And so, to reject him, and to reject his forgiveness, is to reject God himself. And this is what those teachers of the law were in fact doing. As they opposed Jesus, in opposing Jesus, they were opposing God. In rejecting Jesus, they were rejecting God. Jesus said that you are either for him or against him. There is no neutral ground. You cannot sit on the fence. You know we hear about agnostics. You're not an, if you're an agnostic, you might as well be an atheist. Because you're trying to sit on a fence that isn't there. If you're not for Jesus, you are against him. Now this same Jesus, who, whilst he was claiming to be divine, to be God himself, the Son of God, did something that the religious people of the time, those teachers of the law, found to be a contradiction of that claim. He did what they believed the Messiah would never do. We read from verse 13, Once again Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Not only as we read this do we see that Jesus called this tax collector the lowest of the low. If there was, you know, somebody who was pretty low down there on the social scale in Israel at the time of Jesus, he was a tax collector. Not only does he call him, 
to follow him. But he actually calls him to be one of his closest companions, one of the twelve. And then, not just that, but he goes back to his house and mixes with all his friends. He goes and he sits down and eats. He socialises with what they would have considered his low life. We hear the term used, that his low life companions. All sorts of what people considered to be moral degenerates, tax collectors, traitorous thieves, fraudsters, prostitutes. What would, what would be considered the underclass. The sort of people that respectable people, let alone God, would not associate with. Jesus shows in this act of calling Levi and going back to his house that the gospel is for all. Not just the so-called nice people. It shows us that none, however far we may have fallen, are beyond redemption. When we look at this account of the calling of Levi, we see that he was not one of the crowd that was following Jesus. If we read the account, he was sitting in his booth, he was at his place of work, going about his daily business. We're not told how much he knew or even cared at that time about Jesus. Unlike Zacchaeus, who climbed a tree to see Jesus, And this again reminds us, doesn't it, that conversion, that salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. It isn't something that we can manufacture. Not something that we can educate people into. Conversion is a work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men and women that then goes on to control the intellect. It is not the other way around. We cannot reason our way into the kingdom, nor can we save people by our intellectual arguments or eloquence. We see that Jesus called and Levi followed. Is Jesus calling you this evening to follow him? Whoever you are this evening, whatever your state, You are not beyond his call. His grace is sufficient. His sacrifice upon the cross was sufficient for all of your sin. Levi knew what he was. He couldn't pretend to be a nice person. He couldn't pretend to be respectable. He couldn't go and attend the various rituals in the temple or in the synagogue. He was considered an outcast. He was unclean. He wasn't allowed. Not even allowed to attend. But not only was Levi called to follow Jesus again. Think about this. Jesus called him to be one of his closest companions. Jesus didn't keep him at arm's length. Oh, very nice. Yes, you can come and listen, but sit over there. We don't you sitting with the nice people. What is our reaction 
when Jesus calls sinners to himself? What's our reaction when people come to Christ who don't fit what our perception is of what people should be? Are we judgmental? Like those that we read about just? Or do we rejoice? We're told that the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. Do we feel uncomfortable? Are we prepared to eat and have dealings with those that society considers the underclass? We're all sinners. And it's only by grace. It is only by grace this evening that you're not the drug addict, the alcoholic, or whatever you may think is the lowest of the low. It's not anything that you have done. It is only by God's grace. Do we accept that God's grace is sufficient for all? Do we really believe that God's grace is sufficient? Do we really believe the words of the hymn that says, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus of pardon receives? Praise the Lord. If we don't, we haven't fully understood our own position. And we don't understand grace. The Bible is full of examples of God's gracious dealings with people. We've been hearing about David. On a Sunday morning we'll hear more about him. We look at Levi. Levi didn't do anything to deserve Jesus' call. The thief on the cross. Look at the Apostle Paul. Just look at Paul or Saul. He was on his way to continue his murderous persecution of believers when he was confronted by Jesus. He wasn't seeking Jesus. Jesus sought him. Jesus didn't just preach to these people. He shared his life with them. Vile as they were, he was not embarrassed by them or to be seen with them. Neither did he become one of them. However, he did take upon himself their sin and my sin. He took our sin upon himself, upon the cross. The sinless Son of God is the friend of sinners. His answer to them and his challenge to us today is the same. It is not the healthy who need a doctor but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And as we are all sinners, and our righteousness compared to God's righteousness is as filthy rags, it doesn't compare in the sight of God. We are all called to repentance. And as a church, we are called to call We're called to make that call to people. The Holy Spirit and God himself is the one who converts, who changes the hearts of men. But we are the ones who publish it. As we continue uh, from verse 18 to verse 22, Jesus is asked some more questions. 
Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. No one ever sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. We see that Jesus refuses to conform. He refuses to conform to the orthodox behaviour of his time. Jesus <coughs> and this behaviour raised questions from people. Not just the teachers of the law, but people in general. Why is it that your disciples don't behave like all the others? And probably, you know, sometimes we get asked the same sort of questions, why don't we do things perhaps that they do in, the, in the, um, the Orthodox Church or the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church. And Jesus gives them what may appear to be a strange answer, but the ritual of fasting, even though not stipulated in the law of Moses, had become an accepted practice. Part of becoming ceremonially clean in preparation for a ritual or part of as part of a penance. But Jesus at this time was with his disciples, so they did not need to fast. The time was coming when Jesus would be taken from them. Now fasting can be beneficial in helping us focus on prayer, by denying ourselves, but it will not save us, or in it of itself achieve anything. Jesus then goes on to say some strange things that appear strange to us anyway about patches on clothes and, and wineskins. Um, not many people patch clothes these days unless it's to be make a fashion statement. But we tend to live in a throwaway society. But that wasn't the case then. People very often only had one, one garment which they would have to patch. And, of course, they didn't have glass bottles. They put wine into wineskins, containers made of animal skin. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't work. You can't put new cloth onto old cloth, and you can't put new wine into old wineskins. If you do, then the cloth, the old cloth will tear because the new patch is stronger. And if you put new wine into an old wineskin as it ferments and expands, then it'll burst. Same will happen and still does happen even with the thickness of, wine, of bottles, especially in champagne and such things that can explode. What Jesus is saying is no point in trying to shoo or new life into old systems. It's no point in trying to put new life into old systems. You can't, as it were, put what the new covenant that came, you can't just add it on to what they were doing. 
It was a new way. To do so with all the compulsory ritual, there would be no need for the sacrifices. The new way to try and put it into the old Jewish ritual, it doesn't fit with the freedom and spontaneity of the new life which is in Christ. Adding rituals and good works onto old, unregenerate lives does not work. We have to be made new, born again by the Spirit. Paul tells us that we are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. This was the problem that some Jews had. They tried to add the new way onto the old way, believing that you had to be a Jew before you could be a Christian. Salvation is in Christ alone. It is all of grace and we cannot and do not contribute to it in any way, shape or form. Jesus continues in verse 23. One Sabbath Jesus was going through the cornfields and as his disciples walked along they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to them, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abithar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is unlawful, which is lawful, sorry, only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal them on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed, at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. We see that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus never took the easy option. He never looked for a quiet life or a compromise. From claiming to be the divine son of God, calling and mixing with undesirables, refusing to conform to the religious norm of the day, and now it's almost like he's gone a step too far. He fails to observe the strict teaching that had developed over the years regarding the Sabbath. It'd be very easy now, and we, we don't have time, I'm glad to say, to debate the Sabbath and its observance. However, we have to understand that the Pharisees had spent much time, particularly in the intervening period between when the Old Testament was written and the New, in defining the laws of Moses. And they still continue to do so. So what you cannot do, can and cannot do on the Sabbath, is carefully defined. For example... You can only walk a certain distance. If you walk more than a certain distance, that's work. 
probably most of you this evening, have broken the Sabbath. You've driven too far to get here, or you've walked too far. If you stay in a hotel, in a Jewish hotel in Israel, then on a Saturday morning, sorry, there's no toast. That's work. You can have the disco on the Friday night, but there's no toast in the morning because that's considered to be work. So we see how it works. A very rigid, hard and fast rules with no room for compassion. This rigid approach that they have runs immediately into problems when we try to apply it anyway. Because the priests and the rabbis and pastors work on the Sabbath. So straight away we see that there is a little bit of a problem. Jesus used the example that we heard about a few weeks ago as we go through 1 Samuel, where David ate the bread from, from, the, from the house of God. But then the important point here with regarding to the Sabbath is the point that Jesus makes. The word Sabbath means basically to desist. That is to cease or to desist from work. And this is for the benefit of creation. This is for the benefit of man. It is a creation ordinance. Rest for man and beast. Even people who have, they call it the eight day week or whatever where you work so long, always recognise that you need to have so many days work. No one works and can continue to work seven days a week without a break. But beyond that, many people at the time of Jesus taught that the prime purpose of man was for the Sabbath. That is, to keep in the Sabbath rules. That's why we were here. That's why man existed, to keep the Sabbath. That's like, we would say, that's like saying we live to work, not work to live. But Jesus doesn't condemn the Sabbath. In fact, Jesus, it's recorded that Jesus on the Sabbath went to the synagogue first thing in the morning, as was his custom. But exerts his authority over it. You see, the problem that they had with the Sabbath was that the Pharisees, like us, were bringing worldly principles to spiritual truths instead of the other way around. They were looking to fulfil what the Sabbath was from a worldly aspect of rules and regulations rather than what the Sabbath was intended to be. You see, so often we want to know, or we will say, what can I do on a Sunday? Or to put it another way, what can I get away with? What's the minimum that I have to do, if you like, to keep God happy on a Sunday? And then I can have the rest of the time myself. You see, our attitude is the wrong way round. We should be approaching it from the other direction. You see, really, it shows how we think. And what we think is, it's all about me. That's our approach to life in general. It's me. It's all about me and what I want. Do we view 
Sunday, we have the first day of the week, not the Jewish Sabbath, as a burden. Are we trying to cram so much into that day that actually it doesn't have the desired effect? You know, it's the day we've got to do everything. We want to please ourselves. We've got to go everywhere, do everything. Oh, and while we're at it, perhaps we can make an hour for church. Or do we see it as an opportunity to meet together as believers around God's word in fellowship with one another, sharing with one another? You see, it's not really about what we can or cannot do. It's about what is best. We're not talking about right and wrong. We're talking about what is best. Neither is it about being judgmental. Very easy for us to be judgmental. We don't do something, they do. I'm better than them. You see, we're not going to impress God by how we keep the Sabbath or how we don't keep the Sabbath. We're sinners, saved by grace. Our salvation is on grace alone, not by Sabbath observance. You see, these people were watching Jesus to see how they could trap him. And now he has declared he is Lord even over the Sabbath. It's a showdown. Surely he can't get out of this one. If he heals this man, everybody knows that's work. Surely if he's God, he won't break the Sabbath and heal this man. And Jesus knows what to think and he confronts them with it. And they refuse to answer. When he says, is it right to do good or evil? To save life or to kill? They can't answer him. No, sorry. Not they can't answer him. They won't answer him. Because they know what he's saying is right. But they won't admit it. They are stubborn. Jesus was distressed and angered by the stubbornness of their hearts what they think and their traditions are more important than the truth they were more interested in their rules and the application and their standing in society than what was right Jesus healed the man not in part but Jesus healed him completely a withered hand became whole But how did they react when they saw it? Did they praise God? We read at the beginning when he healed the paralysed man that the people, there was rejoicing. They were praising God. We don't read that here in this narrative. Instead, they went out, joined forces with their sworn enemies, the Herodians, to see how they could plot to get rid of Jesus. You see, you can't be neutral when it comes to Jesus Christ. You can't be neutral. You're either for him or you're against him. We either serve him or we are against him or we don't. We either live for him or we don't. There is no neutral ground, no centre ground. And just as Jesus said to Levi, follow me, 
decides to each of us to follow him. Everything else, everything else without exception, our views, our tradition, our family, our work, our hobbies, come second. It has to be and can only be Jesus first because he has demonstrated his authority. Jesus is Lord and has authority over all things, including me, including all of us here. There is only one authority, and that is Jesus Christ himself. Before we meet around the Lord's table, shall we stand to sing? Jesus Christ, I think upon your sacrifice.